Uh, Well, these chapters of Ezra are about leadership. Uh, In fact, people have written Christian books on leadership based on Ezra. Uh, They identify a number of things that he does well and they often match them up with business best practice and research. Uh, Ezra is promoted as a model of leadership for us to imitate. But I wonder if that's the main point. Because Ezra is just one part of a big story that we read in the whole of Scripture. Uh, Yes, the book of Ezra, it finishes hopefully. The Jews are obeying God, they're repenting of their sin, they're putting away their foreign wives, but they're still slaves, living in an unfortified city, and we're pretty sure that the change of heart won't last. Ezra may have done some things right, but is he ultimately successful? How well does he really lead Israel? Is he the leader we should copy? So it's with questions like those that we finish the book of Ezra. Uh, And unless we remember how the big story finishes, how God will send the perfect leader who never fails, unless we remember that, then we're going to be left at the end of Ezra feeling somewhat unsatisfied. We're going to be left with the feeling, is that all there is? Is that it? Now, I'm not normally a fan of reading the last page of a book first. If you want to know about that, you can talk to Karen. I think it spoils the story. But in this case, I'm a fan. We need to read the last page of the book first. We need to keep in mind our New Testament. Uh, When we read Ezra, we have to remember that it's only Jesus who can fix the mess we make of our lives. Ezra can't do it. Only Jesus is the leader that we really need. We are much better off spending our time imitating Jesus, not Ezra. So we've read the last page of the book. Keep that in mind as we turn to Ezra chapter 7. It's interesting, isn't it? We're at chapter 7 in the book and it's only here that we meet Ezra for the first time. Uh, The guy whose name is the title of the book. And chapter 7 begins with the words, After these things... Now, if you work out the dates, we're actually jumping forward nearly 60 years between the end of chapter 6 and the start of chapter 7. That's two generations. So it's likely Ezra wasn't even born when the temple was finished back at the end of chapter 6. Now, the first 10 verses of Ezra chapter 7 give us a summary of chapters 7 and 8. And what these chapters do is show us that Ezra is the leader that God's people need the leader God's people need. Verses 1 to 5, Steve did a uh, a brave job with uh, all of those names. In verses 1 to 5, I looked at it and I thought, now who can I get to read these names? I'll get Steve. Verses 1 to 5, it's quite a history, isn't it? Uh, It's quite a, a, a bloodline. From his dad all the way back to Aaron, the first chief priest. Uh, He's got better bloodlines than Farlap. But not just history, Ezra himself's done pretty well. Verse 6, we see that he's a teacher well versed in the law of Moses. But it's not just knowledge. Uh, His knowledge of God's law changed him. Uh, Look how he put that knowledge into practice. A bit further down in verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Learning, learning, keeping and teaching God's law. 
He knew the theory, but he put it into practice. But not only that, he taught it to others. Now that's a great mark of someone who's a good leader of God's people. Someone who knows, keeps and teaches God's word. It's interesting, we see that same combination of requirements for church leaders, for for ministers, for elders in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, for example. Uh, And the list, there's actually a lot more emphasis on godly character than on practical abilities. You don't pick someone who is good at doing certain practical things like academic results or preaching or leadership. You want to pick guys who are godly. That's what Paul says. Look at how he uh, describes the ideal uh, church leader in Titus chapter 1. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe uh, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. Now there's a list that will uh, sober those of us who are elders. Uh, it's one we, uh, we really should be reading regularly. But notice how all of them are qualities to do with Christian character and then how that character works itself out in godly actions. It's describing the sort of leader worth following. In fact, it's not until you get to verse 9 that you get something close to what is a, a, an, an ability. So look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So he's got to be able to teach and encourage and instruct in God's law. But even as it's described here, the emphasis is more on the character of of the man, isn't it? Of being steadfast and reliable in his doctrine. Not necessarily about having to be a gifted teacher or a great leader. Steadfast and reliable. Now, you know, that, this is a sobering list, but I can, can I just say that I'm confident that we've got these types of elders here at Ashfield. Now, they're not perfect. We'll be the first to admit that we're not perfect. But I feel like these, these guys here are worth following. They're a work in progress, but they're worth following. We're working towards these things. Now, that's what we get about Ezra, verse 10. He's devoted the study and observance of the law of Lord of the Lord. He's observing it, he's teaching it. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 7 tells us that he arrives in Jerusalem. Remember it's 58 years since the temple was finished and it's nearly 80 years since the first returnees uh, got to Jerusalem. Now that's the summary of, uh, of what's going to come and uh, he stops and he backtracks and he expands uh, out some of the detail. Before he'd left Babylon, it seems like Ezra had approached uh, King Artaxerxes with a pretty bold request. Uh, The second half of verse 6 tells us that the king had responded by granting Ezra everything he'd asked for. So behind that we see his request. Uh, From verse 11 we get a copy of the king's letter. Now if you look through that letter, if you skim through it, he's basically offered Ezra a blank cheque. 
Uh, everything Ezra had asked for and more. So have a look at it. Verse 13. Uh, any Israelite who wanted to could return to Jerusalem with Ezra. Verse 15. Take the king's gift of gold. Verse 16. Take any gold and silver donated by the Jews in Babylon. Verse 17, make sure you buy plenty of animals to sacrifice at the temple. Verse 18, you can keep the change. (laughs) Verse 19, make sure you put the temple articles you were given into the temple. Verse 20, anything else you need, pick it up from the royal treasury, wheat, wine, oil and salt. And then top it all off, verse 24, uh, this is written to the local treasurers, make sure you waive any taxes for the whole project. It's tax-free. But verse 25, perhaps dearest to Ezra's heart, the king said this about God's law. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, according to God's law, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who don't know them. Ezra was basically authorised, given the, uh, the, the right to do what he wanted most, to teach people God's law and then to see it change society. So it's no wonder, verse 27, where we finally get introduced to the, the character of Ezra himself, uh, how excited he is. This is perhaps an extract from his diary or his, his, uh, his, his prayer diary or his journal. But verse 27 jumps out of the pages at us as we hear something of his character in, uh, in this verse. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who's put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and in this way, and who's extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. At a human level, Ezra wasn't confident that his request would be approved. He felt outnumbered. He felt outgunned by all of the king's officials. But he recognises that God's on his side and God uh, works uh, his good favour before the king, softens the king's heart, just like he'd done earlier with Cyrus and Darius. And knowing that God is behind the whole plan, he can take the next step. So the second half of verse 28, because the hand of the, of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. He's got the king's blessing, God's moved the king's heart, he's got his letter, so he takes courage and uh, he gathers people to go with him. And those people are listed there in the first part of chapter 8. Uh, including, interestingly, from verse 15, an emergency call for some Levites. Uh, Remember, the Levites are the experts in God's law. They're going to be essential for Ezra's plan. They're sort of the crucial ones. You could have more of this group or more of that group, but he's got to have some Levites. Now, we don't know why there were no Levites at the first request. What's specific about the Levites? I wonder if it was just that's the way things often work out in uh, church groups when you ask for volunteers. Uh, Everyone assumes that someone else will do it and uh, so nobody does it. That's just my view from from this side. We don't know. But by verse 18, they put out a second request and uh, they find some Levites to come along. Then from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, we see how God is still working. 
He's watching over them as they make their thousand kilometre journey. Now, what I noted about um, these verses is that there's this interesting combination of prayerful dependence but also careful planning. There's a, there's a balance between prayerful dependence and careful planning. There's prayer that God would protect them from bandits, which he does protect them. And they actually trust God enough not to ask the king for an armed escort. Uh, Ezra thinks it would be some, uh, somewhat um, uh, hypocritical to, to tell the king, our God is powerful and he rewards people who obey him. Oh, please, can you also send me some soldiers so that um, our, our treasure will be safe? And so he doesn't ask for soldiers. He trusts God and God and prays. So on the one hand, there's this prayer, but there's also careful planning. Uh, we find out about the accurate measurement, the accurate accounting of the treasure. Uh, we hear about the wise uh, accountability measures, how he appoints uh, reliable men to keep an eye on the treasure, and then instructions about when they arrive, how they're to sign it over and to recount it. Now, there is a good example, I think, in all of these verses for us to follow today. Uh, Today, on you know, committees of management, congregations, when we make decisions, we have to walk this similar line between showing good financial responsibility, wise decisions, but also prayerful faith in a big God who can do anything. Uh, we have to do both. We have to trust God. We have to be wise. Now, individually, we do the same thing, don't we? We have to trust God, but we also have to be wise. Uh, we pray for God's protection and we go to a doctor. Uh, we look before we cross the road. We insure our houses. Uh, on the one hand, we pray for our friends to come to know Jesus, but we also look for opportunities ourselves to speak to them. We pray for God's guidance and wisdom, but we also ask people for advice and we also do our own research. You know, I think this is a good principle of what God wants us to do in the world, to, to be trusting him, to be praying, but to be using the wisdom he's given us as well, on the other hand. Back to Ezra. Uh, the end of chapter 8, Ezra and the people make it to Jerusalem. Verse 31, they rest, they count out all the treasure, everything's accounted for. Verse 35, they offer a huge thank offering to God. Chapter 9 takes up the story four months later. Presumably Ezra's been going about his teaching, his judging work. Uh, but a group of leaders arrive with a problem. Lots of the Jews have married neighbouring nations. Now that seems pretty harmless perhaps to us. Uh, we marry people from other nations all the time. Uh, it's harmless until you recognise the idolatry in these nations, uh, the wickedness of that. Uh, and verse 3, Ezra is distraught. He's the expert in the law. He knows what God thinks of intermarriage. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. Do not intermarry with them, says God. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. They've only just made it back to the promised land and it's all threatened again. This is terrible news for Ezra. 
But look at what he does next. He doesn't rush out and start an inquisition. His action begins with his own reaction. Verse 3, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the, uh, of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. He shows his grief in a public way, in a public place, and people gather. Towards the end of the day, there's a good crowd. He moves to part two of his plan, verse five. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees. So he arose from his... He stood up and then he fell on his knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and he prayed. It's a public prayer. He prays aloud. He prays before all those who are grieving. And he prays up a storm. Can I encourage you, if you haven't read it, if you didn't read it in home groups this week, go home and read it. Ezra chapter 9, it's one of the great prayers in the Bible. And the point I want you to notice is the way he identifies with the group. Uh, the, the group and the individual are connected. Ezra himself had not done anything wrong, but he stands with his people and he bears the guilt. He confesses sin on their behalf. He belongs with God's people and he'll bear the punishment that follows. Uh, let me read from verse 6 of uh, Ezra 9. Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. We're not complaining. We're here because of our sin. He's owning it. Then verses 8 and 9, he goes on to remind God of God's wonderful mercy in not punishing them as much as they deserved. Yes, we've endured it, but we deserve far worse, he says. He, he describes how they've been given this glimmer of hope, how they're back in the land. They've got a toehold back in God's promised land. They've got a temple. There's a remnant of faithful people. And he finishes his prayer. He recognises how um, frail their, their hold on life is. He finishes his prayer and he throws himself and all the people on God's mercy. Verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Their hope is in God's character, in his reliability, his righteousness. Based on their own character, they don't stand a chance. Next we come to part three of the plan. What's this prayer going to do? Well, during the prayer, the crowd has continued to build. And all of them are weeping as well. And as we move into chapter 10, notice that it's not Ezra who takes the lead. It seems like Ezra's prayer has convicted people in the crowd. Uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, 
We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, he's speaking to Ezra. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. Ezra's made his feelings obvious, but he hasn't set forth the plan. Uh, It takes uh, someone from the crowd to offer a suggestion to encourage Ezra to get the ball rolling. So Ezra says, let's get everyone together. He calls a meeting. Three days later, all of the Israelites are in Jerusalem. It's pouring rain. Verse 9 says, as they stand there in the rain, they're miserable because of the weather. They're miserable because of their sin. Uh, And someone calls out a voice of reason. Let's not make a hasty decision now. It's too important to rush. Let's set up a committee. (laughs) Wouldn't be the first group of uh, large group of Christians that decided to set up a committee uh, to investigate further. And that's what they do. Ezra is a leader who listens to his people. Uh, He even records in his book here the names of four people who voted against that. Their dissent was recorded. That's what we do today. Uh, Individuals are important. Uh, So verse 17, within a fortnight, the committee has done their research. They've reported back. Verse 18, the list of culprits is presented. Each of those who's married a foreigner. Now, we're not told, but we presume that uh, they put their foreign wives away. They divorce them. And, you know, that will leave all sorts of questions perhaps in our mind about uh, these divorced women and how they were supported and so on. Uh, But that's not really a question Ezra uh, considers. And so we come to the end of the book. So what's your opinion of Ezra? Is he a good leader or not? How much has he actually done? Is he a major player? Is he he a strong, uh, dominant leader? Or is he just a minor one who happens to be the history writer? Is he an incompetent, ineffective puppet who just stumbles along? Or is he a scheming politician who's manipulated the crowd to do what he wanted to do all along? Or I wonder if he's not just a godly leader who's not perfect... But he loves God's law, he lives it out, he teaches it. He's humble and prayerful, he trusts God. He knows what's right and he does it. He trusts that the Spirit of God is working in a group. He lets them make decisions. He's got the wisdom to know that effective change has to come from within rather than being imposed. Now if that's the right way of reading Ezra, I think it is then God has given us a great example uh, for leaders to follow. But of course, there's a better leader for us to model ourselves on. A leader who never failed, a leader who always made the wise decision, a leader who always trusted God, who always put those he led first. Of course, it's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 encourages us to follow that leader. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer to the Hebrews is telling us to look at Jesus and imitate him, imitate his faithfulness, imitate his perseverance. But there's one final application uh, from Ezra that I want us to think about. And it's this idea from chapter 9 of of how the individual and the group are joined together. Ezra chapter 9, he confesses sin on behalf of the whole group. He stands with them in solidarity. You see, you as an individual are are part of this group that we call the church. Uh, You have a responsibility. There is something missing from the group when you are not here or when you arrive late, or when you keep to yourself and when you don't uh, use your gifts to build up others. Something is missing. You are part of the body. You are valuable and important and significant. The body does not work properly without each individual playing their part. We are all connected to one another. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one laughs, we all laugh. At least it should be like that. Are we connected like that? Ezra recognised the power of the group. He recognised the significance of each individual within that group. He recognised that there was diversity within the unity. Good leaders will do that. Good groups will demonstrate that. Unity in diversity. Jesus did that as well. Hebrews chapter 2 describes how Jesus identifies with and values the group he leads. Uh, Listen to these wonderful verses. Perhaps you'd skip over them when you read Hebrews 2. Uh, Hebrews 2.11 Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says... I will declare, God, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. That's Jesus. He calls us brothers and sisters. What a leader. Uh, Someone who leads us, who makes us holy, and who joins with us and says, brother. So let's do the same. Let's follow our leader, Jesus. Let's enjoy one another as family, supporting, protecting, encouraging, praying for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Ezra. Uh, We thank you for his example. We thank you have, uh, we see you at work in him and uh, in history. Uh, We thank you most of all for the example of the Lord Jesus who, who makes us holy and calls us brothers and sisters. We pray that you would make us a family, not just in uh, definition, but in reality. Might we be a family. We thank you for our leaders and we pray for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.